Thank you for downloading or podcasting this track. This recording has been remastered to provide the best sound possible given the audio environment of the original recording session. Mosaic Silver Spring is a faith community located just inside the Capitol Beltway in Montgomery County. For more information, please visit our website, www.mosaicsilverspring.org, and we'll see you in the neighborhood. Good morning. My name is Sarah Brearley, and I'll be doing the reading this morning. Um, It comes from Isaiah chapter 45, verse 14, through chapter 46, verse 13. Thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabians, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you, saying, Surely God is in you, and there is no other, no God besides him. Truly, you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, the Savior. All of them are put to shame and confounded. The makers of idols go in confusion together. But Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. For thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, he is God, who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, Seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God beside me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, Every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Bel bows down, Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are borne as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop. They bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made, and I will bear. I will carry, and will save. To whom will you liken me and make me equal? And compare me that he that we may be alike. Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god. They fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders, they carry it, they set it in its place, and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, 
it does not answer or save him from his trouble. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsels shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. I will bring near my righteousness. It is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel my glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, please pray with me. Uh, dear Lord, we are thankful for um, thankful for everything for your truth and your everlasting love for us. Please um, quiet our minds this morning, open our hearts to understand these truths on a deeper level, and please be with Pastor Joel as he preaches this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Sarah. Well done. Last year, there was an article in The New Yorker by Rachel Monroe, and uh, it was an article about a uh, sheriff's race in Texas uh, between two candidates. And these candidates thought it would be a good idea as they ran for public office to become a sheriff to talk about their military experience. And their past military experience became uh, almost a cornerstone of their qualifications, uh, just who they were and what it meant for them to be elected. Well, in an age of FOIA requests and with organizations that are designed to stop stolen valor, uh, the result of this sheriff's race is that people began to realize that one sheriff, a candidate, had lied about their military experience, and in fact they had none, certainly not the level at which they had claimed. And this swung the race for the other candidate uh, who then entered office only some months to find out that that candidate, guess what? lied about their military experience as well. And the, she goes on, Rachel Monroe, to talk about the transition from the Vietnam era in the 1970s, where it wasn't very popular uh, to be a soldier or to serve in the military. It didn't really garner you any praise at sporting events or when you showed up in an airport. Uh, there was some shame associated with that kind of service because of the political environment. But fast forward 40 to 50 years later, and now uh, people can associate themselves with service and uh, gain something from that. And in the article, she, this is a quote from her interview. She says, in many instances, the motivations, and she's talking about people who do this, who say, I was in the military, I want this thing, this recognition, she says their motivations are muddy. An agent at the Naval Criminal Investigative Service told me that most cases of stolen valor don't involve career criminals. 
It doesn't involve people who lie about having served, who are interested in money. More than anything, it's about people wanting belonging. They want to be a part of an esteemed group. So it's not about enriching themselves, but it's about grabbing on to glory and status. I found that helpful as I think about what's going on in the book of Isaiah. There are all sorts of claims to glory, not just military service glory, but far beyond that. Glory of which gods are powerful and which people should serve them. And so the descendants of the covenant promises of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they have been torn away from their homes and they find themselves struggling. And there are these other gods like Bel and Nebo who they're being pointed to to say, these are the gods who have real power and real glory and you should worship them. And Isaiah is calling out to people and saying, no. It's just not true. While uh, they make these claims, those gods are nothing. There is one true God who's worthy of glory and praise and honor and our attention. Everything else that calls out for your praise, that is merely stolen valor. So says Isaiah to the people of God. And it's a call to us today as well in the 21st century. So why in this text we hear quite a bit about carved gods and gods that can be moved around, idols in the traditional sense, which are handmade things, sometimes out of precious metal or stone, uh, or with jewels, things that are fantastic to look at. Our distractions, the things that we're called to worship, aren't always so visible could be things like standards of beauty or achievement or power, whether political or local or otherwise. It could be money, uh, resources, things that we devote ourselves to that we say, if I just had this fill in the blank for your own life, then I would really be someone I would really have something. I would have arrived. And Isaiah says to you, friend, that is stolen valor. That is stolen glory. Because not beauty, not power, not money, not anything in this world that is created can give you the status of being a daughter or son of God being one who is called to worship the creator of our world, being invited in and offered the righteousness that can only come through the one true God and him alone. That's Isaiah's call to us this morning. We're going to look at that in two points. First, uh, in chapter 45, verses 14 through 24, or 25, so that, that first section that we talked about before Sarah read, this is the opening section that uh, gives you a sense of just what's going on. 
In verse 18, it says, For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, He is God. He formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I am the Lord, or I the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. So on one hand, you have Isaiah declaring from, as the word of the Lord, that he is the one who has created the world. He is the one who is worthy of our worship. He is the one that when we think about our status or who we are or whether or not we've arrived, we should think about that relative to the God who created us and gives us purpose. That's Isaiah's call. And so on one hand, Isaiah is calling out saying, this is the Lord who created the entire world. He and he alone is worthy of praise. Or you have the other hand. And he unpacks that starting in verse 20, the second half. So 20b. He says, they have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them counsel together. Who told you this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there are no other gods besides me. And so he is dealing with, Isaiah is dealing with these competing options for our worship. The one true God who created the world or these handmade creations, these wooden idols. That in Isaiah's estimation, and he declares for us, this is true, they cannot save you. For the Christian faith, not only in the days of the Babylonian captivity, as they waited for Jesus' first arrival to come and deliver them and bring about the redemption from the Babylonian gods and kings, For us today, in the 21st century, in Montgomery County, as we wait for Jesus' second arrival, and as we face our own uh, inward sinful desires, as we face sinful systems and live in a fallen world, Isaiah is calling to both of us, and he's giving us a choice. He's saying, listen, when it comes to worship, while you wait, you have a choice, but it's a choice that's incredibly important. So don't get distracted while you wait. Don't think, oh, I can punt this decision of who I worship. Because as you go through life, all of the small decisions, all of the small choices, how you orient your day over day— It is what makes up the question of who do you worship? And for Isaiah, there's only one option that's the right direction. I know that that is a bold claim. I know that that may sound like exclusive. But this is what the covenant God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob calls to us to say that he has created the world, that he gives us purpose, that he alone is worthy of our worship. And so we are called to worship the creator and not creation. 
So if that deals with who created who, God created us and humans created the idols. In chapter 46, it uh, raises this other question of who carries who. Now in 46.1, Bel and Nebo, these are two Babylonian gods. Bel was kind of the the chief Babylonian god, or kind of the first among many other gods. Nebo probably had some connection to the royal house. So they would have been stand-ins for all that the Babylonians worship. And starting in 46.1 and moving on, there is this uh, picture, illustration that Isaiah is giving. He's not describing what's happening in real time. He is more giving like a sermon illustration. He's saying, Bel bows down, Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things that you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. The picture that he's giving is of Babylon, the great city, with these supposed great gods being taken down from uh, their temples, being loaded onto carts that are pulled along by oxen, and being taken out of the city in defeat. And shame. This is the picture that Isaiah is painting for what will happen in the days of Cyrus, the great Persian king. He's saying there's coming a time, Babylonians, where you think you've drawn power and glory from this group of gods. It's about to be made abundantly clear from you by the sounds of groaning oxen. I thought about trying to figure out if I could imitate a groaning oxen. I failed. I tried in the mirror a few times. It did not work well. So I'm going to just insert the sounds of a groaning oxen. Insert MP3 cut. Now that is a sign, Isaiah saying, of those gods having been taken down in defeat to Cyrus and being moved out of the city. That's the illustration he's giving. So how do you know who you should point your worship to? Isaiah saying... Listen, the gods who you think are great now, they're going to become great burdens in the future. They're going to be pulled out of the city. They stoop and bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but they themselves go into captivity. He's saying effectively they're getting exiled out of their own city as a burden to those who carry them. And then God flips it. He says, listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me and from before your birth, carried from the womb. Even to your old age, I am he. And to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear and I will carry and I will save. So while these idols are being carried out to the sound of groaning oxen. God is saying, they are the ones who are being carried. I, says the Lord, am the one who will reach out and carry you. I will deliver you. I will save you. And I have been here all along. God is saying, I have been your God who have made these promises and I have not forgotten you. And so in the midst of your waiting, don't be distracted to this superficial answer that's close to hand. Don't be distracted to some other power or standard that will fail you. It will become a burden. God says, from womb to tomb, I am the one who will save and deliver you. 
It's this picture of God's faithfulness over time. Andre Agassi was a famous tennis player in the 1990s. And uh, when uh, he played tennis in that time period, at least in the early years, he had uh, a mullet, uh, which if you don't know what a mullet is, it's kind of like short on the sides and long in back, right? And uh, it was different colors, kind of like frosted blonde, and he wore this headband or bandana around it. And uh, he played tennis with flair. He got all sorts of sponsorships. You know, I know that tennis isn't always the sport that gets the best sponsorships, but Agassi, he just had something. But this created pressure for him. And in his autobiography, he talks about the French Open uh, in the early 90s. And he says, in reality, that thing that you saw pictures of, that mullet, it was a wig. Because Agassiz started balding at an early age. At age 19, he started balding. And so he felt like he had to cover it up because of the sponsorships and the media and the pressure to be who he was. He had to take on the standard, but it became a burden to him. And so in 1990, in his autobiography, he says, in the midst of the final of the French Open, when all this attention is on me, I'm not actually focusing on winning the match. I'm not praying for victory. I'm praying that my wig doesn't fall off. What a burden that kind of standard that he put on himself is. Now, I know that we don't have any French Open finalists in here, as far as I know. I don't think so. Uh, we, like Andre Agassi, can take on standards of beauty. They can seem to us to offer some attention, some glory, some sort of uh, feedback that we like and we want more of. The danger of that, Isaiah is telling us, is that if we begin to find our identity in that, that over time it will become a burden. It will fail us. It will not be able to make good. At some point or another, that standard of beauty is going out to the sound of burdened oxen. And the same is true of power, political or otherwise. The same is true of money and resources. The same is true of achievement. Where we look to these other things and we think, This will help me arrive. This will make me who I am. The allure of those kinds of distractions is they seem to work for a period. What Isaiah is telling the Babylonians and what he's telling us is that that period eventually runs out. But what never gets exhausted, what never gets lost, what never fails us as a people is the God who created the earth who created the world, who created us, and who carries us and brings about our redemption. What's interesting in chapter 45 and 46 is that uh, there aren't these uh, warnings and judgments. There are in other spots of Isaiah, but here in 45 and 46, there seems to be an invitation to people to pause. Uh, Effectively, to call a timeout right? And to say, maybe I'm worshiping the wrong thing. Maybe I'm going after something that isn't going to last. It will become a burden. Maybe in the not too distant future, I myself am going to hear the sounds of groaning oxen, metaphorically speaking. Isaiah gives us an invite. At the end of 
chapter 45 on the question of creation. He says in verse 22, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn from my mouth has gone out in righteousness in a word that shall not return. And in verses 12 and 13 of chapter 46, he says, Listen to me, you stubborn of heart. You who are far from righteousness, I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I will put my salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. God extends this invite to people who have been distracted in the midst of their waiting, who've turned for the instant feedback of other things that are near at hand but won't last. He gives you this invite. He says, turn to me, repent. Turn to me and be saved. Turn to me. I will meet your unrighteousness of worshiping other things with the righteousness that only I can bring. And that is what is amazing about Christianity. That is what is good news in the midst of a period of waiting is that when we begin to hear the distant sounds of our own uh, pursuits failing, and we begin to navigate and wrestle through just what that means for us, if I put all of my stock in what I achieve and how that makes others happy, then when I fail to achieve or when others stop being happy, where do I turn and where am I left? And in the midst of that unrighteous moment, Isaiah declares to us that it is God himself who comes near to us. That as we wait for Jesus' return as king, we can remember Jesus' first advent where he came near to his people. Where he humbled himself and came near to those who were undeserving and unrighteous and took on their sin himself. That he brought about righteousness for you and I and invites us in. That's what's so amazing about Christianity. is not that we deserve God's grace. And not that we can clean ourselves up in such a way that we make God take notice. You can't hire some sort of recruiting righteousness service to get you noticed by God in such a way with the right connections that God then comes and says, Ooh, that's a five-star recruit because of how they look or because of what they've achieved or because how much power or status or money they have. It doesn't work that way with God because he's God. He's created the world. He has everything. And so instead, what we have is the joyful invitation in the midst of our struggles. That even though we may have tried other things and failed, God invites us back to himself. That is what's so amazing about God's grace, is that he continues to call out to us today. And Isaiah is declaring to us in chapter 45 and 46 that he's worthy of our trust. How do we know he's worthy of our trust? Because he created the world. Because he's carried his people. Because he has arrived in the person of Jesus Christ to take on our sin and to deliver us from death. His love has been de demonstrated to us and he calls us to trust in him. Frederick Buechner, a theologian and a beautiful writer, in his book, The Magnificent Defeat, wrote this. The terrible truth is that the gods of this world are no more worthy of our ultimate trust 
than the people who created them. Buechner reminds us that the gods of this world, the things that we're tempted to worship, the things that distract us, are no more worthy of our worship than the people who created them. And the truth that Isaiah is communicating to us, both through affirmation and invitation, is that the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, makes good on his promises and is worthy of our ultimate trust in this season of Advent. That is, while we wait, he meets us in the person of Jesus Christ. While we wait, the Father makes good on his promises of redemption for us. While we wait, God pours out his spirit on his people and gives them gifts and cares for them until Jesus returns. That while we wait, God and God alone is worthy of our trust. Let me pray. God, I ask that you will encourage us as a community that when we're tempted uh, to be distracted, to give uh, our praise or our value to other things, that you will call to us and remind us that that will falter and it will fail, that those things aren't worthy of our trust, but that you are, that you've demonstrated your love for us in Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.